It is so good to see you. Um, last week, I watched service uh, from the beach in Southern California, which is just about as close as you can get to heaven in this world, at least for me. Um, I know some of you love fall. I walked in this morning with a big jacket on over this, and someone said, you look like a lumberjack. And I said, I'm freezing because I'm a beach guy. Um, but man, I, I loved last week watching that from the beach. But I got to tell you, there's no replacement for being here with you, seeing you, singing with you, praising Jesus with you. Um, I'm just super glad to be back um, and super glad to be worshiping with you. Um, on our way home from this trip, uh, I took our girls to one of my favorite places in the whole world. And um, it's not as glamorous as a beach in Southern California, uh, but it is near and dear to my heart because I grew up going camping there, and it's a place called Casa de Fruta. Has anyone ever been there? Off of Highway 152, if you're going to the 5 to go south, it's a great uh, place. And uh, we did all the stuff. We rode the train. We rode the carousel. We took a break and just got some incredible fruit. Um, and, and, and then after that, I took our girls to... Um, the playground there. Uh, they've got a really epic playground, but the playground there now uh, is totally different from the one I grew up playing on. Um, I don't know if you remember playgrounds in the 80s and the 90s, but they were made of metal. They had tetanus shots just ready for us. Like, I don't know how we survived all of that. Now they're plastic now, which I'm just realizing our kids might say to us, like, how could you do that to Mother Earth? But I, I guess what I would tell them is at least you survived to ask the question. Um, anyway, the playground's totally new, um, but one thing survived from my childhood, um, a giant set of monkey bars. I mean, these things are so far off the ground, there's no way it would be up to code today, but they saved this relic from my childhood, and one of my children, and if you know our family well, you can guess which one ran straight for those monkey bars. And she climbed up there, she loves monkey bars, she climbed up, got on it, and when she got to the top and looked down, she froze. Um, and... And so I walked over there and I said, it's okay, sweetie, I've got you. If you fall, I will catch you. It will all be fine. And she looked at me and just went. <laughs> she was frozen. She was stuck to which I went like, what have I ever done to make you think I would drop you? I've never once dropped this kid. Her older sister, that's another story. But I was a first time parent. Don't judge me there. Um, the point is she doesn't know about any of that unless they're talking. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what have I ever done? But eventually, you know, I, I'm a preacher, I'm a speaker, and so I, I just said, like, hey, I have six points for why you can trust me. And so eventually got her to, to give it a try. And sure enough, she was right, she fell. And I caught her, and I told her, told you. I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. But I said, hey, go try again. That was a good try. And so she went up and she tried again. And this time, because she knew I would catch her, she wasn't looking down at the ground the whole time. She looked straight ahead and she swung out way farther than she did before. And she had a great time. And here's why I'm telling you this. First of all, I'm proud of her. That was incredible. Um, like, you should have seen this. It's like three or four times her little height. But um, the main reason I'm telling you this um, is because I think a lot of times we're like Brooke on the monkey bars, um, where um, we, we can get to this point in our walk with God where God says, trust me, come this way. And we look at him and we go, Ugh, I don't know. And we get stuck instead of soaring across the monkey bars of life. And what we have in our text this morning is a story that's meant to encourage us. Uh, that God is someone who is infinitely more worthy of our trust. 
so that we might swing out onto the monkey bars of life and really soar. Um, Are you ready to look at it? All right, Genesis chapter 21 is where we'll be. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 1. We read this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. Um, Now, we see right in verse 1 here, um, something we're going to be talking about all morning, that God is a promise-making God. Uh, He makes promises all throughout the scriptures. We'll be talking about some of the promises that God makes to us this morning. Um, But I want to start by considering what promises did God make specifically to Sarah? What is this verse talking about when it says that God came to her and did as he promised? And to answer that, you have to go back to the beginning of the story. On page one of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world and everything is beautiful. Um, Everything works as it is made to. And so um, what you see in that opening chapter is a picture of harmony where the lion lies down with the lamb and it doesn't end badly for the lamb. It's like Zootopia for anyone that's seen that movie. There's just this paradise of harmony between God's creatures. And it's not just the animal kingdom. In the human kingdom, our first parents were naked and unashamed and they were having a great time. Um, Adam wrote the first R&B song about it. Um, I'm not kidding. It's in the text. Go look it up. Genesis 2, first human song ever, naked, unashamed, and he's singing about it. And all of this is flowing over into glad worship of the one who made it all. Um, Page one of the Bible tells of a time where the world existed in a perfect state of harmony and joy and life. But uh, then in chapter three, uh, Satan enters the picture and, and he ruins everything. Um, He comes to our first parents, and he he somehow convinces them um, that God's holding out on them, that there's something more that they haven't tasted of, and if they would just get out from relationship with him and under his thumb and connection with him, then they could really become um, the fullness of what life could be. And so our first parents fell for the lies of the devil. They rebelled against God, and in that moment, the harmony of the cosmos is fractured. Um, Now, it is a moment that Adam and Eve regret immediately. Um, But once the genie of sin is out of the bottle, it it, it infects everything. And so from that moment where Adam and Eve take from the forbidden tree, break relationship with God, even though there's great regret the second they do it, sin is now in the world and it infects everything. So in Genesis 3, you see the first marriage fight. In Genesis 4, we get the first murder And then after that, we meet this lovely guy named Lamech, who is both a murderer and a pervert. Um, He decides he's such a big deal that he should take two wives because he's so godlike that he, he needs multiple humans to satisfy him. And so if you've ever wondered what the Bible thinks about polygamy, um, I know we're starting to talk about it again today or what we're calling today thruples because Satan got a marketing degree apparently. Um, Look at the story of Lamech. This is a terrible man. I mean, even his name, it's a lame idea. Don't be like Lamech. He's a terrible man. It is a terrible idea, and and that's what we see in the story. This is what happens when sin gets into the world. It infects everything. It ruins everything. And so humanity spirals downward and downward and downward until in Genesis chapter 11, we come to a city called Babylon. Babylon. 
And this city is marked by such evil, wickedness, injustice. The uh, vulnerable were being oppressed to such an extreme degree that God steps out of heaven and in love comes down to the city and judges the city. He confuses their language so they can't work together to oppress anybody anymore. And the people in this wicked city, they give up their city building project and they spread out over the course of the earth. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 12 where God goes into the heart of all of this darkness, into the city of Babylon, into the smoldering ashes and ruins there from a city that had been fully abandoned. And he comes to a barren couple, and what he says to them is, I'm going to fix all of this. Um, Actually, the way he says it is, um, I'm going to give you a son, And through your son, more sons will come. And through those sons, more sons will come to where you will, your family will become a mighty nation. And through your nation, I will work out this plan that I've been working to redeem everything that has been broken in the world. To undo the effects of sin and to restore the harmony of the way life is made to be. That's his promise to Sarah. They're the couple. She's the barren woman that God comes to and says, I'm going to give you a son, and through your son, sons will come, and eventually I'm going to restore the whole cosmos. There's a lot wrapped up in this line that he came and did to Sarah as he promised. And so Abraham and Sarah, um, they follow God into the unknown based on this promise. They leave everything familiar behind, Everything they knew, everything about their source of identity, they left it behind to follow God because they trusted that he would do what he said. And along the way, if you've been here with us on this series, you know they've seen God do some incredible things to protect them, to preserve them, to keep the promise on track. God has worked miracles in their life, and so their faith has grown from when they first left Babylon. They are growing in their faith in the Lord. They are growing in their love for the Lord. But then... Some time passes, and five years go by, and 10 years go by, and 15 years go by, and 20 years go by, and 25 years go by to where this couple begins to wonder, is God ever going to come through on that promise he made? Anyone ever been there? Um, I know I have. I I think we all have. Unless you're a brand new Christian and Jesus just wakes you up in the morning, taps you on the shoulder, you're ready to read your Bible, you're so excited to tell everyone about Jesus, right? Like we walk with God long enough, doesn't this happen? Where we can begin to wonder like, Lord, are you ever going to come back and fix this place? What about all these promises? Have, Have you ever been there? That's where Abraham and Sarah are. And and I think this is why this story is so important. Because what happens when you begin to, we've seen this in the story of Abraham and Sarah, is when you begin to go, God, are you, are you even there? Are you going to come through? What can happen in that moment is like Sarah said a few weeks ago, you can begin to believe things about God that aren't true. You can begin to believe he's preventing me from this. He is against me. You can begin to believe the lies of the devil to where you go from soaring on the monkey bars of life to all of a sudden you get stuck halfway across And you're too scared to move forward, but you can't move back. And all of a sudden, you're frozen there. And you're like, my little girl going. 
And what this story is here to do in the Bible is it is so, I believe, important for us today. Because this story shows us God is not only a promise-making God, but he is a promise-keeping God. Uh, Let's keep reading. So he comes to Sarah, and he did to her as he promised. Verse 2, And Sarah conceived and bore to Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears this, they will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Um, So there it is. I reviewed the book for you so you could feel the tension this morning that after 25 years, this is the day this couple has been waiting for. Here it is. The promised son has been born. I was studying this week. I was like, this is like Christmas morning for this couple where a miraculous birth is causing all of this joy. I love this scene. It is so joyful. Um, Sarah, we read, she's laughing. She's like, who, is gonna, who would have thought that I, at my age, would have born Abraham uh, a child? And um, Abraham, he names his son Isaac, which means he laughs. So Sarah's laughing, Abraham's laughing. He's like, this is crazy. The author of Genesis says it twice. It's so redundant to say, yes, uh, Abraham had a child really by Sarah. Yeah, that one who's 90 years old at this point. Sarah says, no one's going to believe. They're going to laugh. This is so incredible. Everyone who hears this is going to laugh. We should name our child Laughter. It's an incredibly joyful scene. And, And catch us, it's joyful precisely because it seems so impossible. Um, again, Sarah says in the text, who would have said that I would bear Abraham a child at my age? Some of you are like, ease up. Hey, that's the word of God, not me. She's 90, he's 100. And she's like, this is crazy. By every medical explanation, this is impossible. But what we see in the scriptures is God is in the business of doing exactly what looks impossible to us. And look, sometimes God works in our lives through very ordinary means, and that has its own glory. That, that should cause us to rejoice. That's, we have a holiday coming up, Thanksgiving, where we reflect on the good gifts that God has brought in our life and connect that back to the giver of those good gifts. God so often works in our life in ordinary ways, and that has its own glory. But what we see in the scriptures is that's not the only way God can work. There are times in our life where God invades the created order, and does what can only be described as a miracle. And so this is why we can never count God out, because just when it looks impossible by human standards, God loves to show his wonder-working power. And and this is why they're laughing here. Because they're like, this was impossible. This is a gift from God. This is a miracle. And so if you walk in here this morning and you're wondering, like, God, are you ever going to come through on your promises to me? Perhaps he is not 
fulfilled that promise yet because he is still at work to bring about this kind of laughter and joy when he finally delivers. And if he gave it to you right now, you wouldn't have the same joy. It's what he was doing in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Excuse me, Abraham and Sarah. And I guess technically Isaac. The, the point I think we're supposed to take from all this is God always keeps his promises, even when it seems impossible to us. God always keeps his promises, even when it seems impossible to us. And the more impossible it seems, the greater the joy, the greater the laughter, the greater the flourishing when he comes through. Um, now, um, that's one thing we need to take from the story. The next thing is I want you to notice when God comes through on this particular promise to Sarah and Abraham. Because I think sometimes what we can do is if God hasn't come through yet, we can begin to think, well, maybe the problem is me. Maybe God is waiting for me to clean my life up before he blesses me with this thing I've been praying for, before he blesses me with this thing that he has promised. Maybe it's because I'm not a good enough Christian, but if I could just get my life together, then God will deliver on his promise. And I want you to see this because I want to free you this morning. That is how every other religion works, but that is not how the God of the Bible works. The God of the Bible is not a genie that gives us our three wishes. He's not a vending machine that we have to put in the right religious works in order to press the buttons to get the blessing. The God of the Bible is someone who blesses us when we least deserve it. And and that's why I think God included Genesis chapter 20 in the Bible. Um, See, the story of God fulfilling his long promise to Abraham, it doesn't come after Abraham is this... um, loving intercessor for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah like Pastor Larry showed us last week. That was Abraham at his best saying, God, be merciful. They don't know what they're doing. Would you be gracious to them? Would you spare them? Abraham was at his best in Genesis 18 and 19, but this story doesn't come after Genesis 18 and 19. In between that story of Abraham being a faithful intercessor for a wicked city, And the story of God coming through on his greatest promise to Abraham is the story of Genesis chapter 20. And here's what happens in Genesis chapter 20. Um, I'll just summarize it for you because this is going to sound familiar. Abraham and Sarah go through a region where the king is known for being a pervert. And so Abraham, what he does is he says, okay, I learned my lesson in Egypt last time. Rather than give myself over to fear and faith, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to honor my wife and everyone's going to have a good time. I'm just kidding. That's not at all what he does. It's not at all what he does. He plays the whole Sarah, would you pretend to be my sister card again? Which I'm like, the first time he does that, I'm like, who am I to judge? I've never had a wicked king want to murder me to get to Karen. So maybe I shouldn't judge Abraham. But the second time he does it, like the story reads just like Genesis chapter 12. The second time you're like, come on, buddy. Like the second time, I'm like, I I was thinking about this week. I don't know how he worked up the nerve to ask Sarah the second time. At that point, I would have been more afraid that Karen would kill me than the king would kill me. Like I'll take my chances with Abimelech. But he does it again. And just like Genesis 12, the story reads so similar God intervenes to protect Sarah from her husband's foolishness. He comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you're a dead man if you touch her. 
So Abimelech wakes up, though he doesn't worship or love God, he's like, okay, that was real. And so I've got to reorient and rethink my life. And so he gives Sarah back to Abraham and he says, you guys go on your way and can we make a peace treaty? I'd love to be boys with you because your God seems pretty powerful to just know this stuff. And so he sends them along their way. And that is when God rises up to deliver on his great promise to this couple. Here's the point. God, God doesn't come through on this promise after some great story of Abraham's faithfulness. He comes through after one of the most embarrassing stories about Abraham recorded in the Bible. Because here's the point. God doesn't keep his promises based on us being worthy or getting our lives together or cleaning ourselves up. He keeps his promises based on grace. This is how it always works with God. This is what makes the Christian life unlike any other life, unlike any other relationship. God loves us in spite of us. You've seen this in the story of Abraham with the covenant ceremony where God walked through. He said, this is going to be a one-way relationship that will depend on my faithfulness. I'm going to love you no matter what. And my love is going to be what changes you into a new kind of human. This is how it always works with God. That his grace always precedes our great acts of faithfulness. And it um, remains steady even when we fail to be faithful. This is how it always works with God. He loves us in spite of us. And because he loves us so much, he makes us these incredible promises in Scripture to bless us because his heart towards us is kind and he is a life giver, not a life taker. And he wants us to be fully alive. And because God loves us, he delivers on those promises when we are at our worst. Because catch this, you're never going to be perfect in this life. If God waited to bless you until you got your life cleaned up, you wouldn't get a single blessing until you arrive in glory. God delivers on his promises by grace. It's, it's grace from beginning to end with God. And so this leads to the classic question then. Maybe you're already thinking this. If God's going to be gracious and deliver on his promises, no matter how foolish I am, then why should I bother with great acts of faithfulness, right? Like, um, if God's going to be, let me say it a little bit more plainly. If God's going to be gracious, then why does my obedience matter? Why should I leave behind all of these comfortable things and follow him into the unknown like Abraham and Sarah if in the end I know he's going to be gracious? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because that's what the rest of the chapter is about. Uh, look at verse 8. We read this. And the child grew and was weaned. This is talking about Isaac here. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had bored to Abraham, laughing. Um, that word laughing, it is not the kind of thing Sarah had in mind when she's like, everyone's going to laugh, like joyful laughter. Look at your footnotes. This is talking about a type of mocking. So think like seventh grade girls looking at your dress and being like, <laughs> that kind of thing. This is not edifying or building anyone up here. So, verse 10, so she said to Abraham, some of you, it's been a long time since you've been around junior high girls. All right. I'm just preparing myself for the day. Verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. 
But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Um, See, chapter 21 that starts off so joyful, it doesn't end joyful. Or at least it doesn't go joyful in the middle. Um, Because Isaac's birth, it's not a joyful occasion for everybody. Um, Because 16 years prior to this birth, um, Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting on God. And so they tried to deliver on God's promise in their own strength. They said, if God's not going to do it, we've got to do it. And so Sarah comes up with this crazy plan to say, Abraham, come sleep with this woman who works with me. Take her as your wife. And then the child you have can be my child. Which if you're like, how does that work? You're paying attention. It is crazy. There is some context there if you want to go back and watch the sermon on Genesis 16 on our website. But it's crazy. And so they try to do in their own strength what God promised to do because they got tired of waiting on God. And um, what, what ends up happening, the punchline to all of this, is um, Abraham now has sons with two different women And they're all living under the same roof. This is a Jerry Springer episode waiting to happen. Think about this. He has two different sons with two different women, and they're all sharing the same mailbox. And so what we read is, sure enough, that's what happened. On the day Isaac is weaned, which in this culture would happen around two, maybe three years old. Now, I know I just lost some of you. You're like, how long did they wait? It was a different time. But at about two to three years old, when the child is weaned, they they would throw a party, which is what happens here. And at this party, where they're celebrating the life that God had given, that they're celebrating Isaac made it through the trials of infancy, and he is growing. When they're celebrating all of that, everything comes to a head at this party. And we read that Ishmael, who, when you put the timeline together, he's 16 by this point. Um, Ishmael begins mocking his brother. Now, some of you, if you have brothers, you didn't even notice that in the text because you're like, this is what brothers do. That's like Genesis saying, water is wet, sky is blue. Um, But I, I want you to slow down and think about this. Ishmael is 16. How old is Isaac? Two or three. How emotionally damaged do you think a 16-year-old boy has to be to mock a two-year-old? This is not normal brother behavior. This is trauma being acted out. I was thinking about this week, like my heart breaks for Ishmael. This little boy grew up in a home where his mom and dad's wife were constantly bickering. We read about this in Genesis chapter 16. We saw glimpses here in Genesis 21. Sarah still, 16 years later, won't call Hagar by name. They're constantly bickering with one another. This is the home that he grows up in. And this little boy grows up in a home where mom is always bashing dad for being such a bum. 
It's a toxic environment to grow up in where she is just raising. And we see this later. 4,000 years later, the offspring of these two women are still fighting with one another. That Stuff like this becomes generational. When one person has trauma and they pass that on, it passes on. And so this little boy grows up in a home where uh, his mom and dad's wife are constantly fighting. His mom is always uh, blaming dad for being a bum, which she has some real reasons to critique him there. And every time that Abraham would spend time with him, dad's other wife gives him the side eye. My heart breaks for this kid. Because he, like every little boy, loves his dad and wants to hear nothing more than dad is proud of him. But every time Abraham tries to take a step in that direction, it's just chaos in the home. And then this little child is born. And all of a sudden, everybody's happy in the home. All of a sudden, dad comes alive in a way that you've never been able to make him come alive. Like my heart breaks for this little boy. Of course he's going to mock the kid. It's the only thing he knows how to do. But the second he does it, Sarah nails him on it. Sarah goes, this is the last straw. It's been 16 years of living under the same roof, and I'm done with it. She says, Hagar and Ishmael, they've got to go. And the text tells us this was very displeasing to Abraham. Because I think Abraham loved his boy. It was a messed up situation. He had a hard time walking it out. But my heart breaks for Abraham too. This is a broken, terrible situation. And this, catch this, this is why our obedience to God matters. Because God wants us to be happy. He doesn't want broken homes like this to exist. He wants our homes to be places of safety and flourishing where, where we can come alive and become more secure in our identity and be loved and have a, like a safe harbor from the chaos of the world that our home is meant to be this place where we see life and love lived out. This is what God wants for us. This is why, by the way, he tells us why he designed marriage to be the way it is and sex to be the way it is. Because this is radical. You're going to think this is radical. These things were his idea. And he knows how marriage and sex are both supposed to operate. I know ever since Lamech, we've been saying we know better. Abraham did the same thing. But here is how it always ends. When you say, I'm smarter than you, God, this is how life is meant to be. It leads to great brokenness. It leads to broken homes and broken lives and broken people. And no government can fix this brokenness. We need God to invade the brokenness to fix it. This is why our obedience matters. Catch this, not because God would ever stake his blessings on our obedience. Remember the prior point. God does his greatest blessing for Abraham in between the story of Abraham failing a second time with Sarah and in between this story that highlights the brokenness of his past sexual decisions. So it's not like God is staking his blessing on our performance. But, but you've got to see this. God is a good father who wants good things for his kids. And this is the reason for every command in Scripture. And I know it's so popular these days to try to find a way around God's commands, to try to explain God's commands away. Like, I know that God's commands do not always seem like they're here for our life. 
I'll just have some real talk with you. There was a time this week where I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm like, that doesn't seem life-giving to me. I don't want to go do that. But I'll tell you this. In the moments that God says, this is the path to life, and I say, I think this is the path to life, in those moments when I actually, by faith, go God's way, I've never once regretted it. In those moments where God says go this way and I say I want to go this way, I often end up like Abraham in this story, very displeased. And I think a little honest reflection on your life would show that it's the exact same for you. And so this is why our obedience matters. It's not like our obedience saves us. God saves us by grace. He loves us in spite of our foolishness, but he loves us too much to not say, hey, here's some things I designed. Here's a path to flourishing for you. This is what every command in Scripture is about. And if you really believe that, the implications for your life are nearly endless. Here's the good news. Because if you're like me, you could hear that and all of a sudden feel like, so all of these things going on in my life, like, is this my fault? What have I done? Here's the good news. Obedience to God matters because he wants us to be happy. But God knows that we're not always going to obey. So, so here is the good news to ground our hearts as we try to process all of that. Though our choices can cause great grief in our life, what we see in Scripture is our choices can never keep God from blessing us in the end. It's how the chapter ends here. Um, God comes to Abraham, and this is how the chapter ends. He makes another promise. He says, don't worry about your son. I will take care of the boy. I'll grow him into a great nation. I'll bless your son. I'm not going to let your sin have the last word on this. Yeah, you, you guys can't all live in the same home. It's too broken. But you know what? Don't worry about the boy. Here's the promise. I'm going to care for your boy because I love him even more than you do. And sure enough, this is how the chapter ends. Just when Hagar and Ishmael run out of supplies and it looks like they're going to die, God shows up and does another miracle. He puts an oasis in the middle of the desert. Like not a mirage, actual water, actual sustenance to care for, to provide for them. Just like he promised Abraham would. And he goes on, the chapter ends by telling us to say that Ishmael grows into a mighty nation. Basically a preview of everything we will see coming with the nation of Israel. Just like God promised. Because what Abraham destroyed through sin, God redeems with his grace. Because this is the big idea. The God of Abraham is a redeeming God who loves to overcome the darkness of our sin with the light of his grace. God doesn't sit up in heaven and go, how dare you think you're smarter than me? How could you? God sees our brokenness and it moves his heart to compassion like a loving father. And he loves, this is the story from Genesis 3 onward. When humans mess everything up, God loves to rise up and redeem what we have broken with sin. This is why he made 
All of the promises we talked about earlier in the book of Genesis, it's why in the midst of the fall, God says, hey, you've broken the cosmos, but I will one day fix it. I will crush the head of the serpent and undo all of this brokenness. It's why he came to Abraham and Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a son, and through your son, I'm going to fix the world, because the God of the Bible is a God who loves to redeem what sin has broken. And this is why in the fullness of time, this God would step down into the world he made to become the ultimate fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and Sarah, to bless the world by dealing with our sin problem on the cross, by crushing the head of the serpent, by destroying evil at its source and making a way for sinners like you and me to be counted righteous before God in the midst of our struggle so that all of his promises to us might not rest on our performance but could rest on that word we talked about earlier. Grace. The Bible tells us this is literally the entire reason Jesus came. I'll give you a verse I'm sure you all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not get what their sin deserves, but would instead get the eternal life that only he and his perfection deserves. This is the heart of the gospel, and this is why Paul, one of the early disciples of Jesus, a man who is actually a lot like Abraham. He had these great days of faithfulness. We talk a lot about Abraham and Paul because Scripture tells us a lot about them. Paul would get thrown in prison for telling people about Jesus, and he'd convert all of the guards. This guy just lived an unreal life of faith. But then he had days in his Christian life where he would say in Romans 7, I, I look at the things I'm doing, I'm like, wretched man that I am. How do I keep doing this? He was a lot like Abraham, vacillating between faith and faithlessness. He was a lot like you and me. He was very human. And what he writes in one of his letters near the end of his life is one of the most encouraging words about the promises of God. It reminds us of the glimpses we see in this story. He tells us about how it's fulfilled in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says that all of the promises of God are yes in him. It's not that God's promises are yes. It's not like God says it's go time when you clean yourself up. That because of what Christ has come to do for you and for me, all of the promises he has ever made are yes and go for you and me. He's celebrating what we're seeing in this story. That God keeps his promise when we least deserve it because we stand covered in the righteousness of his son. And so if God keeps his promise even when it looks impossible, if God keeps his promise even when we don't deserve it, then what could possibly keep him from ever not fulfilling one of his great promises to us? And that's the point of this story. If you're tracking with me on that, you've got this story. If God comes through on his promises when it looks impossible, and he comes through on his promises when we least deserve it, then what could possibly keep him from fulfilling his promises to us? Nothing. Nothing in heaven above or hell below. Nothing in our life or in the world around us. No powers of darkness. No other people. No our own flesh. Nothing can keep us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the, we see the glimpses of that in this story. And 
And what I'm left with at the end of this going, I, I just think like after this moment, we're not going to see Abraham struggle anymore. Now, he probably did, I tend to think, because he remained human. But we're just going to see acts of faithfulness left and right from this guy for the rest of his life. And, and I, I, I tend to think what happened, and I, I think maybe it was every time he looked down at his little boy, he saw this reminder in flesh and blood that God keeps his promises even when it seems impossible, even when we don't deserve it. And something about that changes this man. And I think, how much more do we have? I love the song we said earlier. What more could heaven possibly give? God has not only given us a son, he has given us his very son in the flesh. And so as we look to Jesus, we have every reason, infinitely more so than Abraham, to know that God will keep his promises to us. And if you live your life with that kind of confidence it will enable you to soar on the monkey bars of life. If you live your life with that kind of confidence, that he is for me, that he is there, that he will come through for me, even if it seems impossible, that will give you the confidence to leap out and to grab and to move and soar. It will get you unstuck from the mess you're in. It will get you moving again, knowing that he's there. He's going to catch me. I can go even if it seems crazy to us. It's exactly what we see in the life of Abraham, that this man was a very ordinary guy with struggles like anybody else. But in the moments he trusted in God's promises, we see this man conquer foreign armies, quell family conflicts, and have a kid at 100 years old with a 90-year-old woman. This is the life that Jesus came to invite you and me into, into a supernatural life, not banked on our performance, but banked on the faithfulness of the God who says, I've got you, now take a step out. And so what I wanted to do is I want to end this message by just reading some of the promises of God over us. I said earlier we would talk about those promises today. I just want to read them over us at the end and, and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to apply these where we need to hear them most in our lives. And so as we do that, I just want to invite you to pause and ask him right now to highlight the words you need to hear. I'm just going to end this message by reading scripture. And I want you to, I want to invite you just to right now, tune me out. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Spirit of the living God, I want to hear from you this morning. Please show me the promises you've made to me that either I'm not aware of or I'm just standing up there shaking my head going, no, I, I, I don't functionally believe it. Would you highlight those words to me that are yes and amen in Christ? That I might believe them this morning and walk out of here with more life than I came in. Go ahead and ask him to speak to you right now. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading these promises. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord, church. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay it, says the Lord. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, about what you will wear. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father, he knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And know this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Because he said, I am the resurrection and the life and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And the Bible closes with these glorious words. It's a longer one, but this is the day we are all waiting on. It says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write down these words, for these words, they are trustworthy and true. I am coming soon. Church, if you believe that, then we would invite you to come forward and take communion, to tangibly celebrate what we have in Christ, to celebrate this good news that all those promises are yes and amen. Not because we're gonna nail it this week, but because of his blood that was shed on the cross and his body that was broken for us. Um, You can also respond to this message by giving of your tithes and offering in faith to say, God, thank you for what I know you're gonna do. Um, There's offering boxes in the back. Uh, You can also give at fairoaks.org slash give. And and finally, let me just say this. If you're here checking Jesus out, we don't want your money. Um, What we want is for you to have some space to just respond to God wherever you're at. And so what I would invite you to do in this time as people are coming forward and doing all this is just take some time and grab one of those connect cards in the pews in front of you. And if you would take just a small step of faith, I know you might not believe in prayer, but if you want to just hedge your bets and take a small step of faith today and write on that card, What's going on in your life? How can we be praying for you? Where do you need a miracle? Where do you need God to come through? Where do you need someone to do these glorious promises we heard? If you would write that down and drop that in an offering box on your way out, we would love to, we would be honored to pray for you. And we believe if you would present your request to God, you might be surprised at how he answers them. And so whatever it looks like for you, we want to invite you to take this time to respond to what the Holy Spirit has highlighted to you this morning.